Aloha everyone, Jeremy Vaney here, and I am thrilled to be sharing with you my latest podcast invention, because there aren't enough of those anymore. Wise Ask. This uh, is something that uh, I do uh, or have done originally, I guess I will continue to do, for the Wisdom app, which is an app that was made, I think, like two years ago-ish. Um... It is only for the Android and iPhone and iPad and probably tablet. Not for desktop computers just yet, although I hope that's in the future. Uh, and essentially it is an app where they asked me to come be a quote-unquote mentor uh, <laughs> to people because I have quote-unquote wisdom to share. Um, so I thought, oh, I'll do it. It'll be for a new audience. Um, and... Uh, and then I'll create a new audience organically, not the people who are, you know, used to hearing my voice. And I explain all of that in this first episode, so I won't say any more. All I will say is, um, this is sort of a go-between show between Paratopia and Our Undoing Radio. Um, it will deal with themes broadly from, from wholeness, the spirituality stuff. To Kundalini, to the paranormal and the ufological. It'll be everything in between. It's an in-betweener show. And because it is recorded, uh, the first few episodes and some later ones are recorded into my phone. And then my wife got a new iPad and I was able to record into that. Um, the audio quality itself may be a little bit rougher than normal. Like I noticed just in listening back to this first episode, um, it sounds a little bit wavy to me. So I haven't listened to all of them. I don't know if that changes when I change over to the new iPad. Um, but just be aware of that. It's a little bit rougher on the edges. It's a live show. It's something where, as you'll see, people can interact, uh, can just sort of pop in and I can have them as guests. Um, and we can chit-chat, or they can ask me questions, or whatever it is. Um, and that includes you. So if you want to go pick up the Wisdom app and come on, you know, come chit-chat or ask me questions or however you want that to go for in the future, um, feel free to do so. And it can be as formal in or informal as you want. You could write to me, jeremy, at ourundoing.com and ask to set up a time. Let's schedule a time. Here's the subject I want to talk about. Um, and we'll do it. And then it will live on the Wisdom app, and it will also eventually make its way here. So that's what this is. It's essentially stuff that I've been working on that's pre-recorded that I'm going to add, you know, intros and outros to that are new uh, where appropriate. And um, I will just say for those of you who are already familiar with me and my story, these first two episodes are encapsulations of my quote-unquote, spiritual wholeness, uh, later on in life, adult stuff, shenanigans, the origins of it, and uh, not so much the ufological. So if you don't know anything about me, uh, early on in life, I have what I take to be alien abduction, UFO-type experiences, and then later in life, uh, I also add on to that some other stuff that we'll be talking about here. So... It's a lot, but um, I don't talk about the UFO stuff early on here. So if you're used to those stories, you're familiar with them, 
uh, and you're sick of them, you can probably skip these first two episodes. For those of you who are unfamiliar with me and where I, my perspective and where I come from, or you know, just my backstory, I guess, um, this is a great place to start. Okay, let's start then. Uh, again, if you want to be a part of this, do write to me, jeremy at ourundoing.com or uh, get the Wisdom app, and they don't really have a scheduler or anything like that on there, so I guess just whenever I pop online, come find me. I think I had said on a maybe a previous Our Undoing radio episode, but also I think I'd written it in the OurUndoing.com forum that I will try to schedule things out, or I will try to let you know uh, when I'm going to go live, and it just seems like that's not feasible. So I won't let you know when I go live, unless you... Uh, want to come live with me and schedule that out with me and then we'll we'll make a plan other than that it's pretty impromptu it's sporadic uh and that's the way i like it and it shows rough around the edges a live show pre-recorded for your listening pleasure right now here we go with the very first wise ask aloha people of the wisdom this is my first talk i'm gonna do things a little bit differently in that um, I'm not inviting my my non-Wisdom app audience to Wisdom just yet, because um, I feel like they've heard enough of <laughs> what these first two talks are going to be uh, that I don't want to bore them. Plus, there's a funny thing when you talk about um, spirituality, which uh, I like to put in quotes, because really what I mean is human wholeness. But we all know it is spirituality. When you talk about spirituality to an audience that you've cultivated to talk about something else, in my case, uh, UFOs, the paranormal, and so-called alien abductions, um, they're not necessarily with you when uh, you, you pull a swerve and start talking about something else such as this. And so in a certain sense, I've long been a man without an audience. But that's never stopped me because even when I talked about that other stuff to that audience, I usually did it in a way that uh, was not conducive to making a lot of money and, um, you know, being called up to conferences and stuff like that. Like if you actually tell the truth uh, in a cottage industry that puts parameters on truth, um, you know, you're kind of rubbing against the grain. So. Rather than uh, drag that audience <laughs> to here to talk about this stuff, I'd rather uh, see if I can't build an, an audience organically with people who actually want to talk about wisdom and hear wisdom. But before we can get to the wisdom part, um, I've got to give you an autobiographical sketch that we'll be pulling from for a series of talks here. Um, and. I guess let me just start that off by saying, um, you know, I know that this is about mentorship, but I really struggle with the idea that that I'm a mentor because I'm not a teacher, you know, I'm not a guru. And if I'm mentoring or giving anything that's like a takeaway to, to help you in some way, it's uh, what not to do, right? So, and we'll get into why that is. I mean, essentially... Um, it has to do with positive negation, which we'll get into presently. So without further ado, I will uh, share with you some autobiographical stuff in 
this talk and we'll see how long it goes, maybe the next talk. And then we'll start um, translating those into uh, their conceptual frameworks. So what am I babbling about here? Well, uh, long ago, um, not, well, I don't know. It doesn't feel long ago, but I guess it, it kind of is like 1999-ish or so. Um, in, in 97, I think it was somewhere 97, 98, I had a roommate in, uh, I was living in New York right now. I'm living in Hawaii back then I was living in Manhattan and I had a roommate who knew that I was into UFOs and aliens and that sort of stuff. And we would talk about it on a fairly deep level. And she said, well, you know, if you're into all this deep talk stuff, you should check out Ken Wilber. Uh, he talks about deep stuff. Ken Wilber, as it turns out, I did check him out. Um, talks about integral um, spirituality. And uh, he's con considered widely to be a, the genius of his day, sort of the Einstein of psycho-spiritual writings and ponderings. And um, I really did like what I was reading from him. It was really uh, inspiring and, and off- the beaten path for even me. Um, but I didn't understand a lot of the words that he was using, the terminology and, and all that. So I felt a little stupid reading him, but I read him enough to not feel as stupid. Um, but what I was reading there made a lot of sense in terms of um, spirituality, in terms of that we don't just transcend, we transcend and include. And you can see this in physical models where, for instance, uh, the atom is transcended and included within the molecule, which is transcended and included within the cell, which is transcended and included within the organ, and so on. And that each higher stage of transcendence relies upon the base stages. And if you pull out the basest of them all, you know, the pyramid, it's like a pyramid, right? So the base always has to be bigger than what's at the top. And if you get rid of the base, the whole thing crumbles. Um, so I found all of that interesting and the idea of like, yeah, you've got to sort of pick apart the, uh, politics and the cultural trappings of the day from which like holy texts were written. Like if you can do away with the stuff that doesn't apply universally and just keep the stuff that does apply, then you can sort of map that out, um, you know, cross-culturally from around the world and see what, what this whole hierarchical spiritual thinking is and he sort of did that he mapped out this cosmos of interior and exterior human shenanigans and in one i don't know if it was a book or an article that i read by him um he was talking about he had cut his teeth on jiddu krishnamurti and i thought huh jiddu krishnamurti i mean if this guy's so super smart who's the guy he cut his teeth on i want to know more and I was having upon a book vendor uh, in the East Village who was selling Krishnamurti books for super cheap, like translations of his talks or, or transcriptions, I should say, of his talks and um, so forth. And so I read Jiddu Krishnamurti. Uh, and I knew that a lot of people thought Jiddu Krishnamurti was smart by that point. Like I had sort of looked him up and saw that, um, but what he was saying angered me. 
like it seemed stupid crazy antithetical to what a human being is like antithetical to how we think but because ken wilbur is a genius and these other people are considered geniuses and they all got it and i didn't i quickly surmised that i'm the idiot in the room <laughs> so not wanting to be the idiot in the room i kept reading christian murdy because like why do all these people think he's so great if he's uh wrong and I kept reading him and kept reading him and I, and I realized it's somewhere in there, it finally clicked like, oh, oh yeah, he's rubbing against, against the grain of who I think I am and who we all think we are. And that's what it is. It's, it's antithetical because we're backwards. <laughs> you know, like this is a huge revelation in your life when you realize how you've been thinking, how your mind actually functions in the world is completely unhealthy and wrong. And so I got that on some level. And part of what he talked about, um, just briefly, is positive negation. So that there are certain things in life that aren't comprised by thought. And things like beauty, things like love, um, and joy. And, you know, you go down this list of certain things that that aren't comprised by thought, and yet there they are. And when you encounter them, you not only recognize them, but there's a moment of sort of self-identity um, with a beautiful mountain, with a beautiful forest, with you know that feeling of love. But if you're going to get to what it really is, um, you have to peel away the layers of what it is not. Like if you're to get to the kernel that is not comprised by thought, which is not clouded by our personal filters, you have to strip away what it is not. So for instance, love, you would say, okay, is love jealousy? Is love possession? Uh, you know, you go, is love desire? Like you go down the list of these things and you pick apart what love actually is not, but are the definitions that we generally include, consciously or unconsciously, um, you do that, and by peeling away the, the layers of the false, if there is truth, it will be revealed in the peeling away the layers of the onion. You are left with the truth of love. You are left with the truth of beauty. And I decided to apply that positive negation technique to my own psychological baggage one, one fine day. This uh, was probably in, I don't know, 1998 or 99 at this point. Does it really matter? I don't know. Somewhere in there. <laughs> I'm old. Um, and I did that to my own psychology, right? So I started peeling away layers of my psychological baggage by just looking at, I mean, I don't know, I'll just an example of like, why do I allow myself to be used by women? And I'm sorry, women, but this is just, this was, I mean, it's my own fault, right? Like I'm allowing this. I'm not saying Women are users or anything like that. But in my own life, you know, we all have these patterns. And mine was, um, you know, like, why why would I do that? Well, because I've got to be the knight in shining armor, right? I've got to come in and save. This is my own personal pattern. This feeling of I've got to save women. Well, why do you have to save women? Well, because such and such a thing in high school. Well, but why did that happen? That's not far back enough. Peel away that layer. Well, let's, it, it all goes back to the parents' vote. It always goes back to, well, this is how I saw my mom and dad treat each other. 
And when my dad would yell at my mom and she'd go off and cry, I would go console her and then I would yell at my dad, which he allowed me to do. Uh, so that's why. Well, why did they treat each other that way? What do I know about my parents? And so I would start, keep going with it, the positive negation, keep going with them. Uh, and then it would get back to my grandparents. Well, why would why did my grandparents raise them that way? Okay, well, what do I know about my great-grandparents? And that's pretty much where my knowledge of my family stops. But if you do that, go back as far as you can with your own family to wherever you can, whatever little bit you know about them. For me, at least, there was this magical thing that happened where I did this with a few issues and then had this big revelation of like, oh, oh, right. This isn't my own personal problem. This is a human problem. This is happening with everybody right now. They're all screwed up. We're all screwed up psychologically, at least in this culture, in westernized cultures. Um, we're all screwed up. And it's our parents who did it to us. And it's their parents who did it to them. And it's their parents who did it to them. And you can go back as far as time, <laughs> and this will be the case. This is just what happens. And once I really got that deeply, not just, I mean, it wasn't an intellectual understanding. It was like the depth of it. I was done. Like my psychological baggage was gone because it's no longer my own, right? It's this species-wide problem. Um of suffering, of making others suffer, and of being sort of ignorant about it, not not knowing it, not doing it on purpose necessarily. Of course, there are abusive parents that are purposely abusive, but that wasn't the situation here. Um, in any event, doing that, I would say, brought me out of a brain-centered self, a logic, reason, rational sense of self, into a heart self. Like that self-identity resolved into a relational identity in heart. And I became that sort of uh, new agey, smiley guru guy <laughs> who like walks around and is like always happy and content. And, uh, and then your family thinks you had a mental breakdown or something and you're about to go buy a convertible and, and think that that's going to change your life. It was everything except the convertible because I, frankly, I couldn't afford one, but also uh, I wasn't having a mental breakdown. I was having a dissolution of self and a resolving into this other uh, more embracing sense of self. Um, more, I mean, dare I say, indigenous sense of self. Um, because when I say that's our broken, unhealthy mind, I'm talking about westernized mind. I'm not talking about like heart cultures around the world, indigenous cultures. They don't have this same sense of individuation, uh, separate self-sense. That's our own problem. They got their own problems, but this one's ours. This one's on us. But because it's such a revelation to us and because it's so healthy, when it happens, you can often mistake that for so-called enlightenment. And so I think so, a lot of people have this type of, um, you know, I would say recontextualizing of self-identity properly into a, a healthier mode of being. Um but then we think that that's that's the big enlightenment experience and now we've got it and now we must go uh teach people and become masters of this and te teach everyone to be happy go lucky smiley people um 
and then we become the hardened self again and we don't realize it and then we degrade from there <laughs> so that's at the end right but i didn't do that thankfully um i stuck with reading krishnamurti because there was still like even though it i was happier and even though i was having like i was certainly more open to truth in the sense that like i would have wisdom come flooding in i wrote a book called urgency and most of that material is wisdom uh is truth flowing through the mind and just you know presenting itself uh and so i jotted it down and <laughs> there you go but that's just sort of like how your mind gets recontextualized and then people think you're reading different material and you're smart maybe or you you know you know these eastern ways and it's like no no this actually happens to you instead of thinking about like commercial jingles and stupid songs that run through your head all day or like you know how you're going to get so and so back and make them pay for what they did to you or how you're going to try to woo somebody you know all that kind of goes away and now it's just this truth is flowing through you um and i was uh i was good with that i was good with being that person for a good long while and it made like life easy because i i no longer had boredom i was fulfilled inwardly i no longer needed music i no longer needed television or movies or any of the things i loved i didn't need to go to shows nothing i mean i could do these things but the the drive like you know that need you you might have for to express yourself artistically or to listen to a song over and over again that was gone uh, it brought me no joy. And when I tell people this, they think like, oh, how boring. What a boring existence. No. The boring existence is constantly trying to fill that hole. And uh, even to the extent that you believe that you're not trying to fill a hole, you're just expressing yourself artistically. Well, uh, no, that's still filling the hole. The hole is you and you're, you're searching. And you, if you're no longer searching authentically, because not that you've found, but that you are no longer a partial self-sense, uh, there's nothing there to fill in that feeling of um, of what you would feel if you enjoyed music or art or any of that stuff. That feeling you get from that is you. It's perpetually you. So there's no chasing it anymore. In any event, um, but I, you know, you still got to hold down a job and all of that, and it's fine because everything is as it should be, right? So it doesn't even matter if you've got a crappy job or a nice job or whatever. Um, the danger with telling you that out loud, of course, is that it becomes something to justify keeping people poor and oppressed by saying, oh, you know, if you were enlightened, you, it wouldn't matter. So just go be happy being poor and oppressed. I, that's not what I'm saying. So please, you know, I know I'm shadow boxing here and nobody would actually interpret me that way, but I feel like people do use it that way. And um, two things can be true at the same time and are. One is that people use it that way. And the other is that you authentically are that way <laughs> uh, when you're satiated uh, completely. So I was still holding down my job and all that. But, um, and I was working in television at the time. Um, and uh, I had, but I had a, after nine, well, before 9 11, when George Bush took office, I had a friend, Rob, who wanted to uh, do a political public access TV show. And he had this idea and he was all excited about it. And he said, but 
I won't do it unless you are, unless you host it, unless you're involved. I mean, essentially without my blessing and without my participation, he wouldn't do it because he trusted my political senses, I guess. And um, because I'm now satiated guy, <laughs> you know, like I don't want to, um, I don't want to screw up his dreams. So I didn't really particularly want to do it. And I didn't have any feelings really about politics anymore. Whereas before I was like a raging progressive. Now it was just like, well, things are as they should be kind of guy. Um, but I didn't want to keep him from his dream. So I said, yes, I'll do it. And then 9-11 happened uh, before we really got going with it, the 9-11 attacks. And he started reading this, uh, you know, 9-11 truther stuff. You know, did the Bush crime family either know about it or did they let it happen or did they make it happen or whatever. And he's like, no, you got to read this. You got to read this. And I read some, some of it was really intriguing and it brought me back down to earth, if you will. Like then I was like, okay, we gotta, we gotta do something about this. We gotta do, you know, some sort of political activism here. All right. I'm in, but I was only sort of half-heartedly in any, even so. Um, but I was in enough that it, sort of was dragging me back to, you know, out of blissful, smiley, happy guy phase, uh, back into like a normal human being. <laughs> but the problem is you can't be a normal human being because you can't not know what you know. And, uh, you know, so what do you know? What you know is um, that we are all interconnecting Essentially, we are all one. And, uh, you know, the, all of this turmoil and stuff really is, like everything else, it's an illusion, but it's an illusion that you are living. I mean, you know, you, you, I'm sure you've heard before or maybe even had the conversation with someone about, like, objects aren't real, right? Physicality isn't real. It's all one energy, man. Well, that's true, but you're still going to stub your toe. And that's also true. So what we're talking about is absolute truth versus relative truth. And now I'm someone who has had a taste of of the absolute, uh, but is living in a rel relativity. And so um, I can't not know the one, even if I'm stepping back into the persona of the original, you know, relativity. Um, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, but this is all just to say that that, that event uh, sort of brought me back down to earth, so to speak. But I should also now just back up uh, because I think this is before, well, yeah, this was in 1999, toward the end of 99 into 2000. Um, I told you that I was still reading Krishnamurti after I became happy-go-lucky guy. <laughs> uh, and I was still reading him because I still, I knew that there was still something missing. Like this wasn't it. And Krishnamurti, to his credit, never says what it is. He doesn't talk about what happens after so-called enlightenment. What he says is truth is a pathless land. So anything that you do to try to get to it is a projection of yourself. It's your own want, your own desire. It's the roadblock in the way of that which you seek. Essentially, you are the roadblock to that which you seek. Thought is the roadblock 
to not thought, you know? So he talks about thought in terms of psychological time. And if you want to know what is timeless, what is not of time, then psychological time has to come to an end. And while I did work on my baggage and recontextualize myself into heart out of brain, that still was not a moment of no self necessarily. That was a transition of self into proper contextualization, into healthy self. So I'm a healthy self, but I'm a self nonetheless. So how does one get rid of oneself <laughs> if one can do nothing about it, if there is no how, because any how is going to be just a, leading to a further illusion? And I was sitting there reading Krishnamurti one fine day on a, my couch in the East Village, and um, I, I, it just finally clicked with me. Like, oh, oh, I get it. I get what the problem is. I'm that guy. I'm the guy who gets it. I'm the guy who intellectually understands it. I'm the guy who is recontextualized into heart, understands these things intellectually, has the wisdom coming to him. So now I've become self-identified as that. I'm the guy who keeps reading Krishnamurti. <laughs> and when I, in that moment of understanding, like, oh, I'm still here, right. That's the problem. There was a moment of complete nothingness. I didn't call for it. I didn't expect it. Krishnamurti doesn't say what happens. He just says, you know, do it and find out. Uh, figure this stuff out on your own and see what happens. You know, do the experiment. And when I finally got it so deeply that it shut me down, that my own brain or my own brain-body-heart complex dissolved me, ceased me, there was a moment of nothingness. And in that moment of nothingness, in complete silence and timelessness, uh, an energy rose from the base of my spine, which I'm, people I'm sure have heard is kundalini energy. Um, but I had never heard of this. I had never heard of kundalini, or I know I had heard of chakras and made fun of them, because it sounded like some New Age woo-woo crap. Uh, but now I know that not only are they that, they're also real. <laughs> and so is this kundalini, which I had no context for, and Krishnamurti gave me no context for. Uh, so in the moment of nothingness, Kundalini, uh, rose up the spine and the result was, well, one physical result was that, uh, I slipped a disc in my back as a result. Um, and another result was that my head started spinning around my neck, like doing an exercise. You know, like if you your neck is sore and you just spin your, your your head around your your neck, it was doing that. I wasn't doing that. My head was moving on its own, doing that. And the only reference point I have for this is uh, the movie The Exorcist. <laughs> it wasn't that type of spinning, but you know, when your head starts spinning around, you, you're like, oh god, I'm possessed by a demon. Thanks, Krishnamurti. Glad I <laughs> glad I read your books, buddy. But nevertheless. It was fascinating. Like, even though there is that fear of like, oh God, am I possessed? Um, this is fascinating. Like, your body is moving on its own. Your body has its own sense of intel intelligence. When you step out of the way, the body speaks its intelligence. And so I was just fascinated and I would let this happen. And it's not as though, like, I would go anywhere. Like, there's the moment of silence, the kundalini shoots up. But as that's happening, I'm back again. I'm 
I'm me. Um, and while the body is moving around, I'm still there. It's not like something takes over and I go into a trance and all sort of nonsense stuff. Uh, but I would let that happen for like a couple of years. I just let this thing play out because I wanted to see where it was going to go. And uh, part of where it went is into, well, physically healing me um, because when I slipped a disc, uh, I'd actually, I guess, slipped two discs and one was so bad I didn't feel the other one. <laughs> but uh, so one to the left and one to the right. Um, now, I will say that I think that was the Kundalini. I think that however unhealthy you are may, you know, physically how unprepared you are for something like that to happen, um, you know, can end up being a problem. But, I mean, thankfully, I didn't have any psychological baggage to be a problem, so I don't know what that would have looked like. But uh, it is my fault that I let it linger because I know I, I think I had that feeling of slipping a disc before in life and then it went back into place. So I just thought this would go back into place and it never did. And in fact, how I sat at my computer and my work situation, I ended up making it way worse to the extent that I ended up um, being carted off to the emergency room because I, I couldn't move and it was just so painful. Um, and then they found out I had no insurance and they were like, hey, you need back surgery. Oh, you have no insurance. You need to leave. Here's some Percocet. Bye. It was like I spent like a week on morphine in the emergency room. I'd never done a drug in my life. And I was like, wow, man, this is great morphine. And then they're just like, oh, no insurance. You got to go. Uh, so Percocet actually did nothing for me. So I didn't use that. Um, Advil seemed to work okay. So I was basically just like for a good long while bedridden on Advil. And then I would I decided, well, let's see what this this kundalini can do. I got nothing else to do. So I let it go and it uh, slowly but surely did yoga, did these things to the body, got me healthy again to where I could finally walk and function. And so the moral of the story, kids, is I didn't even need back surgery. Thanks, hospital. Um, I guess that's where not having insurance comes in handy. I didn't get a back surgery I didn't need. Uh, in any event, um, so I continued to let this go and just to see where it would go. And it did these sort of psychic awakenings. I had a period of time where just all of a sudden I started hearing conversations like over each other, just people talking over each other, like Claire audio stuff, um, which I then later saw in the movie, the X-Men. It was either X-Men one or two. I, I might've been two. It was like the beginning of the movie where this clairvoyant is hearing all of these conversations, I think, in like a train station or something. It sounded exactly like that. I was like, oh, my God, mutants are real. Um, but so I went for a period of time of, of that, of just hearing this with no visual. And then I went through a period of time of just visual stuff with no audio. And it was visual by way of like it wasn't like I was asleep, but I would shut my eyes and boom, I'd be. Um, different things. One was just seeing from the point of view of a sidewalk as if my, as if my eyes are a camera and I am just plopped down on the sidewalk and I'm seeing bike and car tires go by and people walking just their legs and feet, you know? And it was like five or six seconds of that. Now I can't hear anything. 
in these visions and I can't move my perception. I can't look around. It's just whatever is in front of me is in front of me. Another one was a bird's eye uh, view of a field, just a meadow, like from the point of view of a tree. Uh, that's it. Nothing going on there, just grass blowing in the wind. Another was being um, as if through the eyes of somebody, a soldier or something, in um, a darkened room, like behind a desk was someone dressed in, you know, higher up military fatigues yelling at me. Another one was uh, watching a mother and father uh, make breakfast for their kids before seeing them off to school. Just these like little slice of life vignettes. And again, I can't hear, I can't move my perception. That went on for a few weeks. And I also started having visions and also recurring dreams of Asian people. <laughs> uh, I don't know what that's about. Um, but then that sort of spilled over into real life uh, in weird ways. Um, I don't even know if I want to. Well, I guess I have time for this, right? I don't know how much time I've been blabbing at you here, but I'll just say, like, um, what is that? The cult, the uh, Falun Gong, these Falun Gong practitioners in China, uh, they would do these demonstrations out in New York. And um, so it, it was just like something out of a movie. Like I'm waiting for a train and this little old lady with a cart, this little old Asian lady with a little hand cart walks up to me, bumps me with the cart. Like as I'm just waiting for a train and I turn around, she's like, eh? And she looks up at me and hands me this newspaper and I take it and she smiles or whatever or walks away. And I watch her. She's not giving this to anybody else, just me. She specifically targeted me and then left. Like something out of a movie, right? So I open it up. At this point in my life, like I, I know to look for synchronicities and like things have meaning and something's talking to you that way. So I open it up and I, you know, didn't take long to find it. It was right there on the front page. This was a paper about Falun Gong and about uh, these people doing these these poses and these movements, which... I then later found out they've got this belief that it came from people from the moon or something like that. So, okay. <laughs> but she gave me that. And then I went to one of these Falun Gong demonstrations where it's people who are just frozen in place. That's the demonstration. So they'll have like someone in a cage and like uh, a Chinese policeman about to beat them. And they just stand there posed like a posed picture for hours. I don't know how long, forever. And that's the demonstration of like, this is the the oppression we're suffering in China. Please help us. And their whole gig is that they're not supposed to move at all. And again, like something out of a movie, twice this happened when I stopped and looked at this. Like one of the participants would very, very slightly turn his or her head. It was, I think it was both, you know, one of each, uh, the two times it happened, very slowly turn their head toward me and give a very small but noticeable nod, like an acknowledgement. And, you know, what is this? <laughs> I, I don't know what this means. Um, so that happened. And I had the sense that, like, if if I stopped at any one thing, 
I could become that, right? So like if I were to stop at the clear audio or stop at the the visual psychic stuff, I could become a psychic if I wanted, right? Like that, I don't know this, but this is just how I felt about it. It was like, oh, I bet I could pause on this and learn how to be a psychic and master that and go be a psychic of some sort. But I didn't really want any of that. Like I really wanted to know what is the what is the end game for this energy? What is this doing? It's moving me around. It's getting me healthy. It's kind of, there are moments of fear that are not related to anything, but they're just like panic attacks or something sometimes when this energy is going as if there's something there watching me, but I don't see anything. I don't perceive anything. Nothing bad is happening. And I mean, at the end of the day, I come to that it's natural that, you know, all these fears are my own westernized fears. Um, but. I digress. Uh, so I, I just let this thing go. And um, I'll say, I'm trying to decide which one I want to say first. I guess I'll say this first. There's another energy. <laughs> There's the Kundalini energy that does that. And by the way, to this very day, uh, it's still, you know, it is a part of me. Like if I shut up for a split second, it will come alive and start doing stuff. Um, back then, uh, I, there was another energy and I, have only felt it three times. The first time it feels as though, like when, when Kundalini blasted through me, it didn't feel like it came from anywhere. It just rose. But this feels as though a surgical slit, like a gill or something is how I say it, but really like a surgical, like a fine surgeon's knife cut. Not that there's any pain, there's actually a numbness, but uh, opens you, like unzips or something, like cuts you open, um, and then at the base of the spine. And then the first time I felt this, it felt as though blissful beating energy just came pouring in through my backside, all up and down from head to toe. And it was so amazing, such a feeling that I thought, uh, I didn't think this was happening. But it felt as though I was levitating. I know I was not levitating, and I'm not saying that I was. I'm saying it was so blissful and palpable, this beating energy, that it felt as though I was levitating. So it came in, it did that, maybe 10 seconds, and then washed back out through the slit, and the slit zipped itself back up or closed. Uh, the second time it did this, and now this is, I, I'm never comfortable talking about this because of all the implications. Um, but the second time it was the same thing. Slid opens. This is months later, I'm th I think. Uh, slid opens, and blissful energy comes in. But in with it comes uh, a red, muddy-looking demony gargoyle-looking thing. I mean, I don't know what it is, but I could see it superimposed over my own flesh. Let's put it that way. I could see. It had big red claw hands, and I could see its mouth and its teeth gnashing over my face. Uh, I could see this, and I could feel its feelings, and it felt like um, not very bright. It felt ancient. It felt not intellectually smart at all, and it felt like it was basking in the glow of being alive through the body for the few seconds that it had. It did. And then it left, the beating energy left, the slit zipped back up. 
And that was a little scary to me because I really felt like, oh, is this where I get possessed and I like slaughter my roommates and run into the street raving mad. And then, you know, I tell the police it was, you know, it's temporary insanity or something like none of that happened. Thank God. Uh, and I didn't even get the feeling that that would happen, but it's just, again, like I've seen too many horror movies and I now, uh, and plus, you know, our Christian culture sense of what a demon is, I think is completely off. Uh, I, you know, whatever this was, it looked at the role, but it, maybe it was a little more like, uh, Beauty and the Beast. Maybe, <laughs> maybe my own prejudice, I had it all wrong. Uh, Anyway, uh, that was it. But I was having these recurring dreams shortly after that uh, involving, again, Asian people. And it was the recurring dream is that I'm being shown around a dojo in like an afterlife purgatory or hell, but not hell again. This is not a demon in the way we know demons. Hell is not hell in the way we know hell. It's like literally people on these mats doing meditation in an afterlife that is not quite, you know, enlightenment, but there they are. And on the wall is like a tapestry or something of that gargoyle, demony looking creature. So perhaps he is the master of this realm. I don't know. But these Asian people are showing me around and my, my hands in the, the recurring dream are doing these gestures that the Kundalini energy does. Uh, as if to sustain me in this realm for as long as it takes for them to show me what they need to show me. And so the recurring dream is that they're showing me around different floors of this, right? Now, and I don't know anything about anything, people. I'm just some dude, okay? So when these are happening to me, I don't know anything about yoga. I don't know anything about meditation. I don't know anything. But I do live in New York. <laughs> and there is a Chinatown. And they do have statues. And so at some point I realized, oh, wait a minute. I recognize like the hand gestures that these statues are doing. And I reckon like, this is really fascinating. Like, what is this? What am I, am I being indoctrinated into something by like some hidden Asian society straight out of a bad sci-fi movie? Like what is going on? So, but it was all fascinating. So I would, I would look at and read and seek out just enough to feel like, there's coherence in here. Like I, I didn't feel like I was insane at all, but certainly you got to entertain the notion at some point, but this felt too real to be that this was not a wish fulfillment or anything, but I did want to know that it was grounded in something. So I would look around and get to know, uh, read little bits here and there about these postures and mudras and things like this and then go, Oh, okay. So this isn't just me. Like this happens to people it's just for some reason we don't talk about it or we have amnesia about it like fairly instantly. Um, and we'll get into what that means probably at a later episode. Um, but just to keep going here, that was the second time that I felt this, uh, this energy and I can't make it happen. It's not like Kundalini where I can just shut up for a second and let it take over. It just came on its own. And the third time was the final time so far uh, in, I think, 2004, 2003 or 2004. And it was spectacular. And um, I will cliffhanger you with that uh, because 
I think it's its own episode. Um, and then after I talk about that, uh, we'll we'll get into again. We'll I'll conceptualize some of the stuff. We'll talk about the absolute and the relative. We'll talk about all this stuff. We'll talk about what Kundalini is and is not, um, and all of that uh, at a later episode. So thank you for listening this long. Um, my plan is to keep my talks on the Wisdom app and not like just take them off and use them for podcasting. So if you missed any portion of this, or if you're not going to make it for the next one, it will be up in my Wisdom profile. All right. I appreciate you guys listening. I think it's really cool that I see that there's 22 of you already listening, you know, like, who knew? Um, all right. That's it. I don't know how to end this, so I'm just going to end it. Aloha.